Welcome to Voices of Experience on Kixie AM 880 and KKNW 1150 AM. This is a simulcast program. My name is Paul Casey, your host, and we welcome back Eric Crema, who bailed on us last yeah, week, but he was doing hiatus. some fun things, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. No, it didn't sound like a lot of fun, it's but down it sounded there interesting. In, down there in Spanaway, I haven't been there forever. And what a view of Mount Rainier down there. It's, it was a gorgeous morning. Right. It's really pretty. Well, I hope it was productive. It was. uh, Today, we um, have a lot of uh, good information uh, going both ways and uh, just a lot of features today that I'm pretty sure you're going to really enjoy. We're going to do our feature, as always, Voices in History. And uh, today, one of the historical footnotes will be a television show, the most famous cliffhanger of all time was viewed on March, excuse me, on November 21st, 1980. Think about it. We'll get to it with Voices in History. Right. Eric, you're I've nodding. Got, you think it. you've got it. Yeah. The other Eric's got it. How about you, Jim? Clue. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of Jim, he's here. And we don't... Who's this Jim guy? Jim. We have Eric. Yeah, well, how did you get in here? I mean, who are you? Somebody let me in. It was cold outside. <laughs> nice. You just wandered in. Well, well, welcome, Jim. It's nice to have you here. I'm pretty sure that a lot of people have heard of Jim Fuda. Uh, he's the executive director of Crime Stoppers of Puget Sound. He's a retired King County officer after 33 years. And as I say, you probably have seen him on Como, Cairo, Q13, King 5, all of the various stations talking about law enforcement and the issues surrounding that. And... Um, I think, Jim, when I look at some of the involvement you've had, it's kind of like you've become the de facto uh, between law enforcement and the public. You know, you're kind of in that realm, and that's kind of the way the media has positioned you, whether that's true or not, or whether you agree with that. It's a hard thing to do, uh, balancing both sides. But, Jim, you're very successful at doing that, and I'm glad you're here to uh, talk about some of the important issues we're dealing with. It's almost like we don't have enough time for it, but we're going to give it our best shot here today. Let's see what we can get out there. Right, exactly. Uh, also, I have a John Yogurt here, and he is an author, and he's written a book called 100 Cities and 5,000 Ideas. I like that. And um, these are cities around the world. And um, Seattle is featured in it, by the way, in this book. Beautiful book. But uh, anyhow, that's, uh, he will be coming up in just a few moments. And our comedy clip for today, we'll have Pat Cashman and Lisa Foster back. And um, Pat is going to tell a joke today. That's what I'm going to play. Okay. It's kind of a stupid joke, but I laugh. Still, I laugh at stupid <laughs> jokes. I hope you will, too. But this is uh, Pat Cashman, and he and Lisa Foster host a show called Peculiar Podcast. So if you haven't heard it, I will give the information out about that again. So let's get with it. Uh, Just coming up in just a moment, Joe Yogurt and 100 Cities, 5,000 Ideas. Yeah, I think domestic travel got back to normal last year, especially during the summer of 2021. This year, international travel for Americans really, really came back big. Um, I've been overseas one, two, three, four, five, six times since last December. And I've really noticed an uptick in Americans traveling to places like Canada, Mexico, England, 
Croatia, which seems to be the flavor of the month for some reason, uh, maybe because of Game of Thrones, I don't know. Um, but there's certainly, you know, it was, airline prices were ridiculous over the summer trying to get to Europe, um, absolutely ridiculous, um, because there were no seats on the planes. And I think you read stories about what was happening at airports over there with the baggage piling up and three-hour lines at security and things. And so, yeah, it's international travel is, is going gangbusters again. So do you see that as continuing all these delays, or is it just a matter of getting back into the groove? I think it was a matter of getting back into the groove. I think a lot of airports, just because they furloughed or laid off a lot of staff for two years, they had a hard time staffing up again. Some of them were really, really prepared for it and thought ahead. And others, it's like, oh, no, a lot of people are coming. What are we going to do? Vancouver Airport was really bad for a while, and Toronto and couple of American airports, and I know Seattle, SeaTac, had some problems with their security lines for a while. I read that they were out into the parking lot and things. But uh, Yes, that was like the day before the... I was going somewhere that happened, so that was a real interest <laughs> to me, but they seemed to solve it pretty quick. But yes, you were correct. It was right out yeah. the, the lines into the parking lot. This show originates from Seattle, as you know. For example, Seattle can be very dark, it can be very cold and, and rainy in the winter. Where do you uh-huh. think that Seattleites, the cities that may appeal to them because of that, and summers are beautiful. And I know a lot of people don't want to go anywhere because of how beautiful our summers are. <laughs> and yeah. where would be destinations then if you were trying to pry someone out of Seattle to go somewhere in the summer and leave this area? Summer is not a bad time to stay home if you've got great weather because a lot of other places are really crowded in the summer. Uh, I, I would pick a place in the summer or the, or the early fall that has great weather and maybe not so many people. You know, from Seattle, you know, Alaska is just a short plane ride away. I just did a uh, an eight day road trip through Alberta for my next National Geographic book that I'm writing right now. And I did that in October, and I thought, well, how is it going to snow? But it was the first eight days of October, and we had weather very similar to what I've got today. It was like 70 degrees every day and sunny, even up in the Rockies and Banff and Jasper. But um, so going, I would say, any place in Canada or Alaska, uh, Scandinavia, Iceland, um, in the summer or, or early fall is great. For the middle of winter, you know, I mean, there's tropical islands and there's Mexican beaches. Um, or if you want more culture, Spain, Portugal, southern Italy, Greece, Turkey is really hot right now, uh, hot and as in a good place to go. Morocco, Morocco has, is great in the winter. For sure. Uh, you mentioned Alberta. I took the train through there a couple times through the Canadian Rockies and hit Banff and all that. That has to be one of the most beautiful trips in the world. We have beautiful mountains here in the Northwest in the state of Washington, but yeah. I really don't know if they can even hold, and I can't say hold a candle to <laughs> Canadian Rockies, but they are really spectacular. I was awed by the mountains that there. Yeah, they are. It's really jaw-dropping. It's a, it's a wow experience around every corner. Um, and um, Calgary and Edmonton have turned into really good foodie cities. What do you think should be done that a traveler now should do more planning ahead now than he did before, or is it about the same? You know, I grew up doing road trips 
through the western U.S. and Canada with my parents, and they were always spontaneous. We never knew where we, where we were going to stay until we pulled into a town or a national park that night. And we always got a place because there just weren't that many people traveling then compared to now. But I went through a period when I first got married where I tried to do that with my wife, and we got burned a couple times because there was no room left at the inn. And um, so I always make reservations ahead now. I, for, for, you know, to get to a place on a train or a plane or a boat, you got to make reservations, and, and you really need to make reservations for where you're going to stay at night. The spontaneity comes with where you're going to eat and what you're going to do during the day. Then you can maybe wait and, you know, and, and, you know, you can be really hands on about it and plan every minute, or you can wake up in the morning and think, wow, what should I do today? You can still do that. Speaking of that, what do you do as an expert in this field before you go to a city? How do you plan prior to that? What's your checklist? I always try to get a good map of a place because I'm a map guy and I like going out and exploring on my own, just taking the map and just kind of wandering aimlessly in a new city and seeing what I come across on my way to the big things that I already know about, the museum or the monument or whatever. I really try to check out the food scene beforehand because I've learned over the years that you can get really bad meals in famous restaurants and really great meals at hole-in-the-wall places. And so I asked friends and family or people that I know in those cities, where do you go to eat to get really good food? And so I think I probably do more food research than anything else. Another thing I like to do when I arrive in a place I've never been before is to hire a, a, a local guide, like a, do a walking tour for like half a day, maybe on the first morning that I'm there, because they're usually not that expensive, and they may be like a history walking tour or something like that, but I use it to quiz the person about where they would eat or what's, what's the vibe of the city now, what are people talking about, what's going on here. So for me, hiring a guide, it's like having... It's like having the press conference and asking this person questions for three hours as we walk around. Let's say you're getting married next year or this year, still have time. But if you're going to go on, let's say, a two-week honeymoon, where would you suggest a couple go? You know, again, it depends on their budget and what they like to do. I think Australia, the combination of Sydney and Melbourne is a great combination for two weeks because you get the urban experience. And you can do things, adventurous things, you know, out in, in the outback. Auckland and New Zealand is another great choice for a honeymoon for the same reason, that it's the combination of adventure and big city urbanization, cosmopolitan stuff to do. Going to Montreal and Quebec City in Canada is a great combination. Again, you can drive yourself between the two. A lot of stuff to do in the cities, great food in both places, and it's slightly exotic because it's you know, French Canada and not the United States. There's something regarding a epic 70th birthday trip. What would you recommend? Think of a place that you've always wanted to go and you've never been there. And like, have you always wanted to see the pyramids? Well, go to Cairo, which not only has the pyramids, but it has the brand new Grand Egyptian Museum, which has all of the things they found in King Tut's tomb back in 1922 on display at one place for the first time ever. If you're a foodie, a place like Singapore is just amazing for food. And and if you really like Mexico and want to try something new, I would recommend Guadalajara, which has an interesting colonial history, amazing artwork and murals, incredible restaurants of Mexican food like you've never had before, 
and it's near the town of Tequila, and we all know what comes from Tequila. Question about Mexico. A lot of people I talk to are concerned about safety with drug gangs and things like that. Now, I try to remind those people that, hey, if you went to Chicago and got off, um, you know, Michigan Avenue and went, you know, deep into the city, you'd find problems there, too. That's what I say. Am I accurate there, or is should people really be concerned about, let's say, the drug lords and traffic there? Well, I think like a lot of places, you have to be aware of your surroundings. There are certain places in Mexico that I would be leery about going. I mean, I live half an hour away from the border, from Tijuana, and the border towns have a, still have a lot of violence. It's rarely ever directed at tourists, and it usually is accidental. Um, and that can happen anywhere, as you suggested. Most of the time, I don't drive to Mexico. I'll fly to a place, Mexico City, Guadalajara, Cancun, Tulum, wherever it is, Puerto Vallarta next month where I'm going. No matter where I am, I'm, I go out. I don't wear, I wear my cheap watch. I go out with some cash and a single credit card and my driver's license rather than my passport. Um, just, I mean, you never know, but I would do this in Europe, too. I probably wouldn't do it in Japan because Japan is like a place where you don't expect to get mugged. I don't worry that much about Mexico because the drug gangs usually are in specific areas and they're, it's usually violence against one another. There are certain places where I would probably not go, like Guerrero State, which is outside of Acapulco, because there's so much violence there. But one of the biggest drug cartels is the Jalisco cartel in Mexico and Jalisco is Guadalajara and Puerto Vallarta, which I think are perfectly safe. Mexico City is a lot safer now than it was 20, 30 years ago. If, if you're stupid enough to leave your passport or your camera in a public restroom, it's probably going to disappear. But there's also a good chance that someone's going to turn it in and you'll get it back. So again, that was Joe Yogurt, and he is an editor, writer, photographer, and speaker, and a true voice of experience, and I think he gave wonderful travel advice. I had him on the show, uh, gosh, this year, earlier in about March, and he talked about the uh, 100 parks in the United States that you can um, go to, and gives him a lot of thumbs up on that, and 5,000 ideas. He talked about that. Now, if you're interested in getting this book or any other book, um, that we, he talked about, all you need to do is Google 100 cities, 5,000 ideas. 100 cities, 5,000 ideas. Thank you so much, Joe, for being on the show today. And now we move into our next segment, Voices in History. Are you ready? I'm ready. I need an introduction music or something. Yeah, we do. Like a on dun, the fly. Dun, dun, dun. You know, Voices in History. What do you think? We try that next time, or all right, <laughs> sure, we'll yeah. Time. Let's find something. some historical music and all right. we'll, we'll slap yeah. it. Together. Make us feel Suddenly. smarter, you know. Think about that. Yeah, just more <laughs> dramatic. Here it is: voices <laughs> in history. All right, I think you guys got this one just by your reaction. On November twenty first, nineteen eighty, three hundred and fifty million people around the world tune into the TV show Dallas. Dallas. MASH. Dallas it is. There you go. Who shot JR was the the big question, right? That is it. Yeah. He had uh, been shot on the season-ending episode from the previous season, 
This episode still stands as one of television's most famous cliffhangers. There was another one from the 60s, The Fugitive, David Jansen. Oh, okay. I remember I was really into that as a kid, and that cliffhanger that came at the end, the last thing, the one-armed bandit. Yeah. I was just, oh, my God, I was excited for that last show. <laughs> so that was mine. That I never was into Dallas at all, and, and, and to those, um, what do you call them, serials or soap? Dramas, dramas, yeah, whatever they drama, were. Soap, yeah. But uh, but people were. And then remember, they followed up. I don't know if it was the very next season, but remember, it was all a dream. Yeah, he was in the shower and he, yeah. he was coming out of the shower, and that was a big disappointment. Wasn't that he, Bobby Ewing though? Yes, yeah, he had dreamed the, the whole thing. Right. So it was <laughs> almost like you watched an entire year of a show that wasn't even. And that didn't go well, did <laughs> no, it? it? As did I remember, not. people had a problem yep. with that. So they had a high, a super high, and a super low. Right. Eh, it happens. Yeah, it happens. Now talking about a super low, on November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, as I think most of us know that. President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas, and that was now 59 years ago today, and it's scary to think that you remember something from 59 years ago. And I know two people sitting here, myself and Jim, do remember it uh, as a very young child. Very well. I was in uh, Holy Rosary grade school in my classroom when the nuns came in to tell us all. I was in the Sacred Heart School in Bellevue, Clyde Hill, when the nuns came in to tell us as well. And uh, it was just like one of those moments you still will never forget. Right. And it's just embedded. But uh, Now, was I got a question about that. Was the TV footage readily available like that day, or did it take a day or two? Or when did it really sort of become all over the news? Well, you know, radio was predominantly, I, just, I don't know what Jim heard, but the radio came into our mm-hmm. classroom when we were hearing it, and he was still alive while we were hearing it. And then at a point they came in, not, it seemed like a really long time, but it really wasn't. Then they came in and said he, he died. Uh, when I got home from school, I immediately turned on the TV and there was some, you know, video of it. You could see the cameras moving. You didn't, I, they never really, really had a really good photo, which was fortunate maybe, but the movies sure. of the actual assassination itself per se, except the Zabruder film. But they didn't show that for many years. They did not show the fatal shot until maybe three years later. So they always cut it off when that fatal shot came. Um, so to answer your question, they had some of it, but it wasn't um, you know, that sophisticated. But it's kind of what they say, that's when TV was born and kind of took over the newspapers because people just were glued to the TV throughout that weekend. Then, of course, Sunday, we got back from church, from uh, Sacred Heart, and I'm upstairs, and I'm reading the newspaper, and I hear, Lee Harvey Oswald's been shot. And I'm going, nah. And I go back to the newspaper, and I, hear, I keep hearing. I got up, and I went downstairs, and I just see, now the, the assassin mm-hmm. has been shot. And I go running upstairs, my God, Lee Harvey Oswald's been shot. So that was a whole another traumatic thing that occurred. Yeah, that was a Sunday morning. And yes. I remember watching that. We were watching cartoons, and the, ch- and the channel, it went off, and they showed uh, Jack Ruby coming up and assassinating Lee Harvey. So they broke into it just to show um, they were transferring Lee Harvey Oswald from the municipal jail to a county jail or something. That's what they were doing. But you, they just interrupted the cartoon. Interrupted a cartoon. Just to yeah. you know show the transfer, and then that happened. Yep. Okay. Yeah, and that was like right there. I mean, that was pretty wow. scary. So then, you know, all of the conspiracy theories come out. We can talk about that another time. But it certainly was a moment that will— if you live through it or at that time, you'll never forget it. 
So another occurrence that happened on November 21st, 1877, Thomas Edison announced his invention of the phonograph. Edison stumbled upon one of his greatest inventions in the history by accident while working on a record telephone calls. He was trying to pull that together in his laboratory, and then uh, he did that with a tin foil cylinder. I heard all that, you know, before. I mean, right. I remember hearing the tin, foil, you know, all that. Mm-hmm. But what I didn't know is that um, he jumped into the record business after that. He's an inventor. But, what, again, what I didn't know is that he suffered greatly because of the growth of what? I'm making you guys think. We're in a studio well, here. radio. Bingo. Yeah, radio. Radio 1923 started coming out. Everybody went in that direction, and the record industry suffered greatly, and uh, he got out of it in 1929, never to go back. Interesting. Even though he discovered the phonograph. Um, another quick voices in history uh, would be in a more local level. On November 25th, 1990, the Lacey v. Murrow Bridge, otherwise known as the Mercer Island Floating Bridge to us locals, sinks to the bottom of Lake Washington after a wind and rainstorm on Thanksgiving Day. Now, everybody remember that? I do. I do? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was pretty amazing. It sure was. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, can't it, remember, though, was it was it open at the time or had no. they, clo- they had closed? They it were, was too they windy. Were, it was closed. And, okay. Well, they, I, don't, I believe there was building it. They were actually constructing a new bridge, and that's they were oh, almost done with it, and then that's what sunk. What they did for pollution, they'd opened up pontoons that was holding it up so that all the dust and stuff would, and debris would go in the pontoon, okay. and enough was windy and breezy enough that it filled those up with water and sunk it. Oh, jeez. Okay, I kind of remember that, yeah. And jeez. it disappeared pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, we were watching yeah. it on live, and it seemed like an hour it was there, and it was gone. It just kept going over. That guy who was the head engineer or the project director, I don't think had a great Thanksgiving. <laughs> no, no. Hey, uh, hey, Dad, you know, someone's on the phone. Oh, I'm at Thanksgiving dinner. Don't, don't bother me. No, I think you may want to take this. You've got to take this call. <laughs> That's a phone call you don't want. Right. <laughs> um, on December 18th, 1906, this is interesting, Jim. I think you'll find this interesting. The McKe- Mosquito Fleet steamer S.S. Dix was en route from Seattle to Port Blakely when it collided with a schooner two miles north of Alki Point. 39 passengers and crew lost their lives. This day remains the greatest maritime disaster in Puget Sound in history. Well, never knew about that. Do you remember that, Jim? Were you alive then? Or were you watching? They didn't have the news. Radio wasn't there yet for me, so I I didn't even get to hear it. But it's amazing. We both live in West Seattle, not far from Alki. I never heard of this. I would have thought I would have heard something about that. So anyhow, that is it for uh, Voices in History for today. And again, I always like to let people know where I get my information from. This Day in History comes courtesy of the History Channel. They have a great website. All you got to do is Google This Day in History. If you enjoy these, you'll love it. And uh, of course, historylink.org, which is local. I get a lot of this information from that. So we'll be back in just a moment, and we're going to shift gears here. Jim Futa from Crime Stoppers. You just received some startling news. You're going to need brain surgery. 
but the doctor also says your prospects for total recovery are excellent. The doctor is very confident with his prognosis. He's performed hundreds of similar surgeries during his career. Who would you choose, this doctor or another doctor who's never performed this type of surgery? If the doctor who's performed similar surgeries is your choice, then experience is important to you. That's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. Topics explored including public affairs, self-employment, travel, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. Welcome back to Voices of Experience. And again, we have Jim Fuda in the studios today and um, very experienced. And we've got about 20, 22 minutes to talk to Jim. And there's so much here, it's hard to get to because it's so much. And I've had difficulty whittling this down. So quit mumbling, Paul, and just get to it then. <laughs> How's that sound? Uh, I gave an introduction to Jim before, and what I did mention is that you were a hostage negotiator for many years as well, and that you have been involved in roughly, what, 300 various situations. Sure, and that was over a 25-year period, but remember, most of those were suicidal barricades that people were in there by themselves, That we and, and those are the ones that don't really get reported a lot because we don't want copycats of, uh, of, uh, of that, so... So uh, most of those were suicidal barricades. I've had a couple here um, that uh, one of the FBI still uses as our most bizarre suicide. And one is the second documented case in the United States of somebody being killed on a deadline. And uh, uh, in other words, you got 30 minutes to give me what, what you what I want or I'm killing a hostage. And a guy did. He killed a 17 year old girl in front of me um, in uh, uh, just east of here. Oh, boy. It must be hard to uh, live with. You know, one thing I wanted to delve in with. And, and I would like to ask a question is, if you're confronted with a situation like that on the street, you're a professional, you've been trained with all this, but let's say you're a layman and you see a situation where someone is in crisis and they may be doing something damaging to, to themselves or someone else, is there anything that you would, in the top of your head, say that maybe, let's say, again, a citizen could step in and maybe do something to help the situation or just stay clear? Actually, uh, if, if it's a person in, in crisis, whether it's it's uh, someone's thinking about, let's say you've got somebody standing on the Aurora Bridge and, and it and actually it's a calm voice and not act shocked, just a calm, comforting mm. and uh, say, look, it looks like you need some help. How, how can how can I help you? And why hopefully somebody's calling uh, a professional negotiator to come to come uh, help with that situation. OK, so that's really about it. Just be very calm in the situation. And uh, I guess literally try to talk him off the ledge. Literally. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, shifting into another topic that I wasn't planning on talking about, but the topics have found me, and that, of course, we're talking about mass shootings. We've had three this week, so I don't need to really go through them because we know, you know, there were two in Virginia and then the one in Colorado Springs. I don't know. We keep to going through this all the time. Our thoughts and prayers go out, and we have the balloons out, the candles and the teddy bears, and we're all marching along. And not to get off the subject, but uh, to me, we have to think about doing more than that. And I'm just 
did that little bit of commentary because it's such a tragedy. So let's just say in a situation, Jim, when you may be in, in a time where you enter a store, you enter a stadium, office building, and all of a sudden you know there's something going on, you hear a shot go off or you think it's a shot, whatever, what should you do? Well, that's called situational awareness or basically knowing your surroundings. When you walk into an, let's say it's an unfamiliar place, look where exits are. Look if there's something that, that, uh, uh, where you might have to hide behind. And there's a difference between concealment and cover. Concealment is something that hides you. Let's say you're in a, in a Nordstrom and you can hide in a clothing rack, but that's not going to stop a bullet. Uh, cover will actually stop um, uh, a, a bullet. So there's these different kinds of things. And, you know, it's I'm not trying to sound paranoid. This will come as second nature where you won't even think about it anymore if you just practice it a, a little bit. Like I said, know about your exits. Know what, what would you do if something happened right now. And, and, uh, w- and it, it gets down to the old run, hide, and fight. And uh, um, run if you can and know if you can make it. Get a, a, as far away from that situation as you can. If you have to hide, if you don't think you can get out of that situation, do that. And let's say you're in an office building and you, something happens and if you can't go anywhere, but so you, you have to lock a door, put something in front of it. But know if that door opens, you'll be fighting for your life. So do what you can, act uh, very aggressively, and hopefully you'll have somebody else in there with you helping um, uh, to control the subject. Put that, uh, get that gun barrel down away from you and, and, uh, and, and fight because your life is going to depend on it. Certainly. Once they come through the door, it's over. It's going to be literally lights out um, unless you do that. You, you're not remaining in a passive condition trying to hide anymore. Now it's time to act and right. just attack the guy, exactly. whoever it is. And I'll say guys because these are all guys who are doing this. And that's what I find you know, tragic about this. The ages of the people in, who were killed in the Virginia, the football team, age 22 male, Colorado Springs, age 22 male, who, who does this. Now, the one in um, uh, the Walmart in Virginia, he was 31 years old, um, apparently a night manager or something like that. But the age group seems to me to be younger males, younger males. That's kind of it. So I don't know, not advocating in in your 20s. You well, maybe you do pay more attention to that. I don't know. But um, I think that's really good advice about being situational, to be aware, like you're in the Fifth Avenue Theater or the Paramount. Do you sit on the aisle at the very edge? Would that be advisable that you get aisle seats so you can get out faster, or does it matter? Well, sure. All all that place. If you're in the in the middle seat in a in a crowded movie theater, you're nothing else you're going to be able to do at that point is is but is to hide. Um, but little things that I do, and this is just comes from a, a cop background. I I don't sit with my back to the door and and, and like I'm in a restaurant. I, I make sure that I and I walk into a room and I look I, I, I do look at people and it's even even subconsciously I, I, I do it knowing is there is there a threat here? And so I, I, I've done that and it's got such second nature. In fact, my wife laughs at me because I, I drive down the street. It's like I see everything around me, but what's in front of me, <laughs> you know, and I, that's from the old patrol days. Where you know you're you're cruising the streets at nighttime looking for something out of place, and and it's carried on into my uh, my past retirement life. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember that. I remember a couple of years ago we had dinner, and you're 
we talked about that, and you were saying how important that is to just be aware of your surroundings. I'm doing a better job, but I, I think what you say, you just have to practice it. It's like brushing your teeth or something. When you go places, just get used to doing that, then it becomes second nature. I guess an easier way to put it is, is you try to be, not be the target. If, if a mass shooting is going to happen, and, and I don't mean to sound crude, but if, if let that, make that shooter go after somebody else. If, if that's the case, before he can be, and there's technology out there too that we're uh, we're working with. Crime Stoppers is working with a company called uh, uh, Response Angel, and whether it be a school or whether it be a movie theater or a mall or a church, whatever, if an active shooter starts, they can pinpoint an active shooter down to three square feet. So the, when the police get, they know exactly where they're going, and and uh, to eliminate a threat before that person could hurt anybody else. Speaking of schools, you have some ideas there, too. I mean, as far as protection on doors and things like that. Yeah, there's a sleeve that uh, these accordion doors, like this one like that's in the studio here, is you can put, it's either a a nine-inch piece of metal or even a piece of a fire hose that there's they can slide over that. Now, you can't have that on all the time. Why? Because, you know, it's a fire hazard. But but uh, if somebody's an active shooter in a building, you can slide that over the door it, with the idea that it gets him go to another door because that door won't open. So little things like this that that uh, uh, that uh, this minor technology like that that you can use uh, that can that can help pe- keep people safe. Sure. Eric, do you have anything? Well, I'm just thinking of schools. Um, you know, people have gone back and forth on resource officers, as they call them, inside schools. I wondered what your take was, if you thought that's a valuable deterrent to have a, an armed resource officer at schools. Absolutely. In fact, I just did this with Cairo last week, is that um, a resource officer is obviously there as a first line of defense. But however, is these guys uh, and officers, male, female, are specially trained to deal and, and with children. They become mentors. And and. And hopefully with the idea that if there's problems in the school with students, that that somebody will come up and give the word, hey, so-and-so just said that they're thinking about killing right. themselves or they're talking about doing this or that. Is that so the information comes that way. They're not just there standing there with their arms crossed and, you know, an AR-15 strung over their shoulder. You know, this sure. they're, they're there for, for uh, other reasons, too. So it, it's a phenomenal idea, and it's a shame that they were taken out. That's interesting you say that because I never really thought of it that way. You almost just think, okay, it's just a person with a gun that is going to uh, counteract something that's happening immediately. But to have that sort of on-the-ground ears to the situation of what's going on in the school over time, I'm curious, do you think that the shooters in schools, by and large, is it a more of a snap decision or is this something they really think out and plan or a mixture? Four out of, according to um, sandyhookpromise.org, four out of five shootings in schools, somebody knows about it ahead of time. Okay. So that, that's, that, and, and, and where are these kids getting the guns? 4.6 million homes in the United States have firearms in the house that are loaded and unlocked. Kid, and they, the parents think they got it hidden. Trust me, the kids know where they're at. Right. Yeah, if I needed cash, I knew where my parents would hide you know, the coins and sure, the dollars. Sure. So I can a gun is only yeah sure. curiosity. So I should watch my wallet yeah. a little bit closer. Yeah, have you seen here. your wallet lately? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm gonna leave that here. Wow, that's uh, you know pretty interesting when you you know talk about how much uh, 
guns are loose in homes and things like that. And you wonder why with those odds it doesn't, well, I can't say more often because they're happening all the time, but yeah, duh, this is going to happen when you leave things out like that. If you leave, they know where the liquor cabinet is. I mean, they'll, as you said, they're, they know sure. where these guns are. It brings up to mind, why aren't these parents held more accountable? Actually, and they should be. And I actually, I think they are definitely starting to. Um, uh, there's a law now that you, you, those guns are, have to be locked up. Are some of them enforced because people, nothing's happened in that home, particular home? But but uh, they those need to need to be followed. I, I also believe in red flag laws. Uh, the the issue comes in there is there comes in a whole nother level of bureaucracy that how many thousands of employees uh, that that the that whether it be state or federal employees to enforce these these and then it's got to be signed by a judge to even get these guns taken out. So it's a it's a a whole bureaucracy of red tape to, to, to take that firearm from somebody. So, so, uh, but uh, is the concept great? I told, I'm totally in favor of it. You're amazing. It is. I talk to my wife sometimes about, I'm saying this for years that bureaucracy kills. And I don't know why that came to mind years ago because I kind of didn't do a lot of study, but this is what I think I was driving at that just, it's not so much the deviant laws that are passed. It's, the lack of enforcement, the bureaucratic, you know, um, things that people go through to try to get something implemented and they just can't seem to do it. Like, for example, it's just really they have the laws in the book, but to get it enforced. Exactly. That's the big you know, stumbling block here. And certainly we have to break that log jam as well. Plus some gun control laws uh, that are sensible. Uh you know, I'll talk to my tribe, and uh, none of us say people shouldn't have access to guns. I don't. I don't need it, but per se, at least I don't. Maybe I'll regret that at some point. But you have to have a lot of training, too, to have a gun, and I appreciate that. So if you grab a gun and just go and put it in your drawer, um, you don't really proficient with it. The odds are there's going to be an accident. That's what I've also read, too unintended to that. But, you know, talking about hunting and all that, people can have that. But this massive uh, guns and repetitive guns, the URs, 15s that are out there, is absolutely stunningly crazy. And it's something I really disdain about this country, that we continue to allow this. So thoughts and prayers. After Sandy Hook, I was driving to a Christmas lunch. And I heard about Sandy Hook before I went in, and I said, if this doesn't do it, nothing's going to. And this is where I go back and forth. Do I want to talk about this anymore? Because, what, nothing's going to happen. That's my figure. Yeah, and, and I, I agree the age on some of these uh, types of firearms should be raised. And, and the argument on the other side says, well, people are in the military at 18, and they're firing those guns. Yeah, I was in the military, too, and— I had a drill sergeant standing over me every step, every round I fired because I was, they controlled. So you were controlled with that. It's not like I'm a 19, 18 or 19 year old kid that has no training at all, is able to go in and buy one of these guns and do whatever I want with it. So I, I don't see that argument as being valid. Well, and number two, uh, you know, when you're in the military, you don't take that automatic rifle home with you to the barracks. Oh, you no. lock it up in an armory. 
or yeah. something like that where yeah. they're put away and locked up. Exactly. That's part of it, too. And that's a major you know, thing that doesn't happen here. So anyhow, as I said, I want to get off track and start doing that. Uh, we only have a few moments to go. But before on that, holidays, how there's crimes that are out there, people in the parking lots taking your presents or maybe something in the house that you have to be aware of lighting, whatever. Do you have any advice on that? Yeah. Rest assured that you have a crowded Northgate, South Center, whatever parking lot, that, that there's going to be people out there that are looking at people going, in, going to their vehicles loaded with presents. Now, if loaded with presents, go to my car, pop the trunk, thinking everything's safe because it's in my trunk, and then I go back into the mall. I suggest that no matter how crowded that parking lot is, that you get in your car once you do that, drive it to another parking mm. spot so Good people... Idea. People uh, uh, say, okay, they're, they're leaving, and you've got it in the car. You're in a different location, and, uh, uh, and so you can at least feel a little more secure that, that your uh, gifts and stuff that you've just bought is not going to get stolen out of the trunk of your car. Mm. There's a lot of Prowler stuff going on. You saw what just happened at South Center here a couple of days ago where um, uh, a car was being prowled. husband goes to, goes to say something, the, the, um, and uh, he gets gunned down, and the wife is shot through the hand. So, so uh, what's what's your life worth? Is it worth a car prowl? And, and uh, um, uh, I guess you just have to read the situation. And the best way to keep yourself safe is to separate yourself from the violence. Before we go quickly, Crime Stoppers. How do people? What's Crime Stoppers, and how do people access? Crime Stoppers. Um, go to your smartphone, download the P3 Tips app. Um, free download. And if you seek something, say something, you can report crime anonymously. There's, you can add video, photos, audio to it. Once you hit send, all we know you by is a numerical identifier. And if your tip leads to an arrest and a charge of a suspect, you will get up to $1,000 cash reward. And no one knows who you are. Excellent. All right. Anything else before we go, Jim? Great, great information, Jim. Thanks. Uh, we need to have him back at some point. Oh, I think. absolutely. You know, there's see, so many look, levels to this. I, everybody out in radio can see what I'm holding up, I'm <laughs> yeah. sure, but it's a sheet. And I got to maybe three of the questions of 10. So, yes, you're right. No, those are more than even than that. But, yeah, there's a lot of more things I want to talk to you about. But thank you, Jim, very much for coming here today. Thanks. Appreciate, Appreciate it. it. All right. So um, we'll move on in just a moment and um, talk about some self-employment for you tips just right after this promotion. Welcome back to Voices of Experience. And again, thank you, Jim Fuda, for that great information. Wanted to shift into another part of the show. We talk about entrepreneurism. And if you're thinking about starting a business, and um, I have some tips is to look at if you want to do that. I've been in business now about uh, 35 years or so. And uh, I learned a lot along the way. 
And most of what you learn is from your mistakes. And that's why mistakes are good. You don't want fatal mistakes, but there are certain things you can do to prevent that. But uh, one thing that I think that if you're thinking about going into business, you're at that stage, um, to, to think about this consciously going forward. First of all, get to know every aspect of your business, everything. For example, when I started my uh, business, I was publishing newspapers. I was the editor. I was the sales director. I was the classified person. I sold the ads. I uh, you know, did it all. I delivered the papers to the locations afterwards downtown and around the area. Not only I looked at it as getting good exercise after getting the paper out, but the other thing is that I knew everything about it. So I'd hire someone after eight months to do that for me. I knew how long it took. You know, you can't come back and say, well, it was eight hours when I know it was three. So I could accordingly plan. I inputted my whole newspaper at the beginning. When I farmed that out, I knew how long it took basically to input a newspaper. So anything that you're doing, you must know every aspect and have knowledge of that. Find a mentor. Find somebody who has done what you are wanting to do about 10 years ahead. Don't listen to Gramps over here who doesn't know anything about running a business. He may have done really well as a truck driver or he was in, you know, the Marines or something, but not to no offense, say Gramps. what it's like <laughs> running, you know, a business. You know nothing about it. I am not going to tell Jim what he should do right. to go out being a police officer or that. I mean, that's what I trust. I'm not going to tell an airline pilot how to fly that plane. I don't know. So knowledge is a good thing to have, but it can be dangerous too when you listen to the wrong people. Um, have a vision, but be flexible. You want to have something that you have strongly in mind what you want to do, but you better be able to move quickly on the dime and make some adjustments accordingly. You'll be doing that all the time. Differentiate yourself from your competitors. Don't be obsessed with your competitors. Your competitors are your best friends. That's a whole other segment, but a big myth is watch your competitors like a hawk. I don't believe in that at all, but I do believe in separation, and that is, um, let's say you're going to be a home builder. I wouldn't even dream of doing that. It wouldn't be in my wheelhouse, but let's say you were looking at, well, maybe you build accessible homes. You mm-hmm. distinguish yourself between, oh, this home... This home's accessible. It's one level. It's got, um, you know, uh, accessible bathrooms. It's got uh, lighting that keeps this in mind, those sorts of things. Maybe you want to b- uh, build green homes. That There are 30% of the population now who are only buying green homes, and that's a lot of people. So just to think of something that can separate yourself out, as Jim has done today, become a resource to other people. Spread the information, what you're doing, get out there, do radio shows, do social media, get yourself out there. So those are just some tips uh, have for today. I like that. Have, have a vision, but be flexible. I think that was a, that was a great quote from you there. Yeah. yeah. So um, thank you. And, I, and those are just some ideas for uh, going forward into business for yourself. So we are coming down towards the end of the program for today. And um, – Let's see. We got uh, Pat Cashman and Lisa Foster was something today. I gave the introduction earlier, but this is where uh, Pat Cashman, he just tells a dumb joke, but I love it. Go ahead, Pat. 
I can't I even do. say that this is a good joke, Lisa, but here it is. Okay. All right. Joke of the week. Or the month, I guess, by now. Yeah. A man on vacation in North Africa ended up lost in the Sahara Desert. The temperature was over 100 degrees. He was desperate for water. Though the heat haze, he was uh, able just to make out a tent in the distance. He said, why is my voice so crackly? <laughs> <laughs> what is, he must be really thirsty. Listen to his uh, voice. He's incredibly thirsty. So, Can you go back and say what he said? Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, they, through the heat haze. Okay. <laughs> Hang on. Was, ah! his name, was his name Pat Bertram? <laughs> now that's a reference that a Mr. lot of Haney. people are not going to get. There was an okay. actor named Pat Buttram. Oh, Buttram. That played the part of Mr. Haney on... Uh, Green Acres, a TV show that most of you kids had never heard of. But he always had a voice that sounded like this. It was always cracking, you know. Okay, so, uh, as told by Pat uh, Button, a man was on vacation. No, don't do that. I hate that voice. Okay. Okay. So he's lost in the desert. Temperature is over 100 degrees. He's desperate for water. Mm -hmm. And through the heat haze, he was able to make out a tent in the distance. Somehow, summoning up extra strength, he staggered to the tent where he was greeted by a Bedouin. A wait, what, a what? A Bedouin, you know, the people that live out in the desert. They... What do you mean, a Bedouin? A Bedouin. I've never heard of that. You never heard of a Bedouin? I think you're making up a word. What the hell maybe is I that? Should, maybe I should drop this joke and come up with a Bedouin. <laughs> No, well, that, that, they're, 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 they're people that live in the desert. They travel. They have tents. I mean, they might live somewhere else. Well, why don't you just call them like that? nomads or something? I know what a nomad is, but I don't know what a Bedouin is. Hello? So he straight, staggered to the tent where he was greeted by a nomad. And the traveler Thank said, you. Water. I must have water. I'm sorry, sir, replied the be- I mean, nomad. I have no water, but would you like to buy a tie? A, a, a tie, exclaimed the traveler as the nomad produced an array of brightly colored silk ties. He said, a tie, you idiot, I don't need a tie. I need, <laughs> I, I need water. Well, said the nomad. If you really need water, there's another tent about three kilometers to the east. Hey, they've got water, I know that. All right, fine. So the weary traveler set off on his lonely crawl across the desert. The journey took him eight hours. Oh my gosh. Finally, he arrives at the second tent. He said, are, are you a better one? No, I'm a nomad. Okay, but do you have any water? And this nomad, by the way, Lisa, was wearing a tuxedo, very well-dressed, standing at the entrance. And he said, can I, can I help? I said, well, one thing I've noticed is your voice is pretty much the same as the previous nomad that I met. Yeah, it's a franchise. Okay. Uh, anyway, 
uh, can, can I have water? I must have some water. And the guy says, sorry, you can't come in without a tie. <laughs> See, I think that one was real. So there you have it. That's uh, <laughs> courtesy of Pat Cashman and Lisa Foster. Thank you for that. Uh, we are out of time for today. We're coming out of time. We still have the uh, song left, um, the Timeless Classic, coming up in just a moment. So um, next week we'll be on, and we're going to be talking about some Christmas activities around the area and playing some Christmas music. So hope you'll enjoy that. Quote of the week, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It's the courage to continue that counts. Winston Churchill. What did he know? Winston Churchill. All right, here we go. Timeless classic. This is from what some people said on the site that I looked up the song. I'm going back to a place that's far away. Something I do every time I hear this song. Another comment. My late brother used to play this album on his Pioneer Stereo in the 70s. I love this song and the memories it brings. From 1977, Dave Mason, and We Just Disagree. Let's go.